small company of U.S. troops were pinned down on top of a hill. They had come under heavy crossfire. The lieutenant, he grabbed his radio and he radioed into his commanding officer, Sir, we're surrounded by the enemy. The voice answered back, Good, don't let one of them get away. Obviously, battles are won by aggression and courage. And this is especially true in the spiritual battle. Sit back, disengaged, and uninvolved. And in essence, let Satan bring the fight to you, and it'll put you on the defensive. But take the battle to the enemy, and you'll put him on the run. You and I need to charge into the fray, speaking God's truth, showing God's love, revealing God's righteousness. In the eyes of Satan and his demons, we should be considered armed and dangerous. You see, the Christian army consists of soldiers who are bold and brave, who will stand against the wiles of the devil. It was Roy Putnam who wrote, It is the fearful who allow the devil to hold high carnival on this planet. The devil sets up his tyranny only because he has not been challenged. You and I need to rise up, put on the whole armor of God, and stand against the evil one. Who can forget that young shepherd boy? who heard the Philistine giant defy the God of Israel. Righteous anger filled David's heart. How dare this wicked Philistine blaspheme God? He needs to be shut up. At first, King Saul tried to fit David in the king's armor. But it was too big. It was too awkward. David couldn't move. He needed spiritual armor, not steel armor. David marched into the valley of Elah carrying a shield of faith wearing the belt of truth, a chest plate of righteousness, cleats of peace, a helmet of salvation, the very same armor that God has supplied you and me. And in the end, this shepherd boy strung a stone and struck a giant and locked off his head with his sword. David won a great battle for God, and his people became victorious because David stood against the wiles of the devil and the strength of the Lord. This is what we need to do. For you and I, just like David, if we want to get ahead in the spiritual battle, like David, then we too need to be bold and brave, brave enough to stand and take the battle to the enemy. And so let me ask you, this past week, Did you dare to do something, to do anything for the cause of Jesus Christ? John Wesley once said, Give me 100 people who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God, and such alone will shake the gates of hell. Well, for the last two weeks, we've been discussing this unseen war in which we're involved, the spiritual battle. We've looked at our adversaries, Satan, his demons, and then all of their wiles. Last week, we clothed ourselves in our armor. Now this morning, we want to load up our arsenal. We're looking at the ammo that God has given us, the weapons that we can use in this battle against the enemy. You see, realize the armor of God is defensive. But we also have some offensive firepower. In fact, Paul mentions two such weapons. The Word of God and prayer. Their code names, the blade and the bomb. The Bible is a sword. 
It's a weapon for the infantry. Prayer is a shield, a shell. It's a missile for the artillery. All Christians are equipped with a blade and with a bomb. And with just these two weapons, you'll find all the firepower you will ever need to take down any stronghold. Don't be mistaken, you don't need anything else. In the field of physical warfare, modern weapon systems are always becoming obsolete. Sherman tanks and Tommy guns have been replaced with M1 Abrams and M16s. They've been definite upgrades. But our spiritual arsenal can never be improved upon. The weapons that were lethal in Paul's day are still top of the line. Paul said this to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 4, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. You see, our arsenal has been whipping the devil for millenniums. The problem, though, is that the sword is useless if it's still in its scabbard. The fuse has to be lit before the bomb will explode. Our need is not for better firepower, but for the confidence to use our current arsenal and the training to use it effectively. And that is our goal for us this morning. Well, in verse 17, the first weapon we've been issued is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now realize, the Bible that you hold in your hand this morning is many things. It is a comfort to our soul. It is a sweetness, sweeter than the honeycomb, the psalmist calls it. It's a book of wisdom and answers. It's also a weapon. The Bible is a blade. It is a spiritual saber. But first, and perhaps foremost for our hearts, the Bible is the great physician scalpel. It's a blade that he intends to use on us. Notice Hebrews 4 verse 12 tells us, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. But notice where it's applied. Piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The Bible, it lays bare our true motivation. It slices and dices our selfish ways. Read the Bible. Immerse yourself in the Bible. And you can't remain in your sin. The Bible pierces my pride with one swipe. It cuts me open and it allows the great physician to do his work in me. In short, God's Word kills me in order to heal me. On the day of Pentecost, before the thousands of folks who had gathered there in Jerusalem, Peter he pulled the sword from his scabbard, and he spoke God's word. Acts 2, verse 37, records the results. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. The Bible gets past the ears, and it gets to the heart. It's made of spiritual steel. It has a sharp spiritual edge. And the Bible is not only an effective tool in the hearts of men, it is especially useful against the devil. 1 John chapter 2, verse 14, there we're told that certain men in the church had fought successfully against the enemy. John writes, I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the Word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. Notice how they overcame. It's because the Word of God abided in them. In Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, He defeated the devil with the careful use of God's Word. Three times Jesus quoted Scripture. 
And here's the point. If our Lord Jesus drew His sword, the sword of the Spirit, in His encounters with the devil, how much more do you and I need to keep our sword close to us? John Bunyan's allegory of the Christian life, Pilgrim's Progress, he records an encounter between his main character, Christian, and the devil himself. Bunyan writes of the conflict, the devil gathered up close to Christian and wrestling with him gave him a dreadful fall. Christian's sword flew out of his hand with the devil's hand on Christian's throat. He was pressing him to death. And as God would have it, Christian nimbly reached out his hand for his sword. He caught it and he quoted Micah 7 verse 8, Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. And with that, Christian gave the devil a deadly thrust. He made him move backward as one that had received a mortal wound. This time, Christian quoted Romans 8, verse 37. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. And with that, the devil spread his dragon wings and sped away, and Christian saw him. I mean, when Satan tries to condemn you, pick up your Bible and run him through with Romans 8, verse 1. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When he tries to frighten you, take the sword of the Spirit. 2 Timothy 1, verse 7. God has not given me a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. And if you're ever tempted to doubt God's presence, grab the Word of God and touche Him. With Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God wants us to be skilled swordsmen, spiritual Zoros. Satan knows how lethal the Word of God can be to his diabolical schemes. And this is why he will do everything possible to keep your sword in its scabbard. Hey, just sit down and read a magazine. You could spend hours with no distractions. But just try picking up your Bible and the telephone starts buzzing in your pocket. Things start going on all around you. Distractions appear out of nowhere. Take the family to a movie and everyone loads up without a hitch. But leave for the Bible study and oh my, the kids fall in the mud, you lose your keys, your car's out of gas. I mean, Satan is going to try to do all he can to keep you from getting into God's Word. He knows that if he can keep you ignorant of the Scriptures, he can keep you ineffective for God. And it's tragic how successful he's been with many, many Christians today. A recent poll revealed that 93% of all Americans own a Bible. In fact, 75% of American households own two or more copies, yet 50% said they never read it. Of the people claiming to be born-again Christians, only 18% read their Bibles daily. After a similar survey, George Gallup drew this conclusion. It is time to sound the alarm. There exists today a shocking lack of knowledge about the Bible. Tragically, churches today are filled with biblically illiterate Christians. Our ignorance is now epidemic. Recently, Sunday school teachers, they were surveyed, and they asked their classes different Bible questions, sort of gauge their students' Bible knowledge. And here are some of the answers that they reported receiving. Sodom and Gomorrah were lovers. The New Testament Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luther, and John. Eve was created from an apple. Really? 
Joan of Arc was Noah's wife? Golgotha was the giant who slew the apostle David? Joshua was a son of a nun? I mean, sadly, today we have denominations and churches and pastors who will defend the veracity of the scriptures to the death. They just never bother to teach it. The prophecy in Amos chapter 8, verse 11 is coming true before our very eyes. 2,800 years ago, Amos wrote, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. There's a famine today. A famine of sound biblical teaching. It reminds me of the young Cajun named Claude. He was a zealous new Christian. He lived way down on the bayou. One day, Claude approached his pastor, and he asked him if he could serve in the church. The pastor asked him, he said, Claude, can you read and write? Claude admitted that school hadn't really been a top priority for him. He'd been too busy hunting gators and eating gumbo. Well, the pastor asked him again, he said, well, do you know your Bible? Claude replied, well, sir, I was pretty good in the Scriptures. I know it's my Bible from end to end. Well, the pastor then asked Claude, he said, name your favorite Bible story. Claude said, well, I like the parable of the Good Samaritan. The pastor said, well, great, Claude, tell me the story. Here's how he told it. Once there was this man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among the thorns, and the thorns sprung up and choked him. And as he went his way, he didn't have no money, and he meets the Queen of Sheba, and she gives him a thousand talents of gold and a hundred changes of raiment. And he got into a chariot, and he drove furiously. And as he was driving under a big juniper tree, his hair got caught in the limb of that tree, and he hung down many days. And the ravens brought him food to eat and water to drink, and he ate five thousand loaves and two fishes. One night, when he was a hanging down asleep. His wife Delilah comes along and cuts his hair. And he drops and he falls to the stony ground. But he gots up and he ran. And he began a raid in a 40 days and 40 nights. And he hids himself in caves. And he lives on the locusts and the wild honey. And while he was there, he met a servant who says, Come take supper at my house. And as he says, No, I won't. I married a wife and I can't go. Well, the servant went on into the highways and into the hedges and compelled him to come. After supper, he went on down to Jericho. Well, when he got there, he saw that old Queen Jezebel sitting way up high in the window. And she laughed at him. And he said, throw her down out of there. And they throw her down 70 times seven. And the fragments, they picked up 12 baskets full, besides women and children. Then they said, blessed are the peacemakers. Now, whose wife you suppose she'd be in the judgment day? <laughs> well, Claude had a few of his sto- stories kind of jumbled up there, didn't he? Hey, biblical ignorance is funny when it comes to a new believer like Claude. But it's distressing when it's found in a person who's been a Christian for a while. Someone once commented on the ministry of a particular church. It's a mile wide and foot deep. The seats get filled with fluff and entertainment and a few Bible bits, but there's not a lot of substance. For people to grow spiritually, they need to be fed 
a steady diet of not just milk, but the meat of God's Word. They need more than snacks and fast food. They need protein. They need to be challenged with a biblical perspective to see today in light of eternity. It's been said to measure the success of a church's ministry. Its members should not only be counted, but weighed. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15 instructs all Christians, Study to show yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth. Later this summer, we'll restart our Through the Bible study, and I encourage you to make it a priority. See, some of you, I'm still convinced, are not yet, you don't yet grasp how important it is for you to have a working knowledge of God's Word, of the whole Bible, not just certain parts. And understand, that kind of working knowledge, it doesn't just come by accident. It takes consistent effort. Hey, I don't hound you to give or to serve or to sing, but I am hounding you to come to the Bible studies because I know it's for your own good. It's for your own survival. Don't be home watching TV while the devil is plotting your demise. A lack of Bible knowledge leaves you and your family defenseless. See, there's more at stake than we realize. At the U.S. Army Artillery Training School in Fort Seals, Oklahoma, the instructors noticed a noticeable difference between the trainees in 1958 and those in 1965. In 1958, it was difficult to keep men awake in the classes, but not so in 1965. The same lectures were attended by men who were alertly scratching down notes. See, the difference was that 1958 was peacetime, while in 1965, soldiers were just weeks away from facing the enemy in the jungles of Vietnam. And make no mistake about it, neither are we living in peacetime. We, too, are in the midst of a fierce war, and if we're not equipped, we'll be easily defeated. In 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 10, one of David's mighty men, Eleazar, he fought against the Philistines and we're told until his hand was weary and it stuck to the sword. Eleazar held on to his sword so tenaciously that it, his hand literally froze to the handle. And this should be our attitude toward the Bible, our sword. Clutch your sword with the same tenacity, for it is a vice grip that's needed for victory. Drop your sword, and you'll lose your edge. Notice here, Paul calls the Bible the sword of the Spirit. And the word translated sword, it refers to the Roman marcara. It was the Roman short sword. It was the two-edged sword. It was sharp. You could file the hair right off of your arm. Mine's not that sharp. But it was sort of short, but it was very, very heavy, and it was very lethal in up-close combat. This was the Roman sword. It was not a weapon that you would give to a novice. If you weren't trained with this sword, you could cut yourself to ribbons. And the same is true with the Word of God. I know people who who grasp just enough of the Bible to be dangerous. Some people, they will use their Bible knowledge to show off. Paul told the Corinthians, knowledge puffs up. And there are people, you see them, you know them. They've learned a little bit of the Scriptures here and there, and it's become a source of pride. That's an improper use. 
Other folks take verses out of context, and they force the Bible to say what it was never meant to say. There's an old adage, a text without a context becomes a pretext. The Bible was given to reveal God's will, not necessarily to justify my desires. Another misuse of Scripture is to emphasize one passage without balancing your perspective with other passages. In fact, you, if you read James and never Paul, you'll be bullish on works, but you won't understand much about God's grace. This is why in Acts chapter 20, verse 27, Paul said this to the Ephesian elders. He says, For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. You see, Paul taught the whole enchilada. He gave them all the Scriptures, not just part and parcel. As we say, it takes the whole Bible to make a whole Christian. Another way to misuse the Bible is to use it harshly on one's enemies. You remember in the Garden of Gethsemane that Peter took a sword and he lopped off the man's ear? He was trying to arrest Jesus, and he took his sword, and I think he was going for the middle of his head, and the guy flinched at the last second, and he nicked his ear. Cut it right off. Peter's actions, though zealous, they angered Jesus because they were inappropriate. In fact, he told Peter to put up his sword. That's when Jesus turned and he reattached the man's ear to his head. And sadly, just like Peter, many Christians, even some of us, have used the sword of the Spirit, the sword of the loving Holy Spirit, to attack and gouge and slice vengefully into another person. And often it's been left up to Jesus to repair the damage done by our abuse and misuse of the Scriptures. When my son Zach was five years old, his granddaddy gave him a pocket knife. I have no idea what my dad was thinking. Giving a five-year-old a pocket knife, a lethal weapon. Well, needless to say, we had to confiscate the knife. We informed Zach that it belonged to both him and his parents, that we would let him use it, but we would monitor how and when. And for a while there, it was limited when I was present. And this is God's policy toward us handling His sword, His word. It requires parental supervision. This is why the Bible refers to the sword as the sword of the Spirit. For it is the Holy Spirit who supervises the proper use of God's Word. You see, it's the Spirit who helps us understand and interpret and imply the Scriptures without cutting ourselves or without harming each other. We need God's Spirit to safely use God's Word. And this is so cool. I mean, what book is there where the author promises to help you understand what he's written? That's pretty cool. This is why when we read the Bible, we should always pray. And speaking of prayer, the second offensive weapon that Paul mentions is the bomb. The blade and the bomb of prayer. God has supplied us both. Oh, prayer is a very potent spiritual weapon. It's been said the Christian army is the only army that marches on its knees. Our greatest advances for the cause of Christ come through faith and prayer. Edward Payson once explained the priority of prayer in a Christian's life. Prayer is the first thing, the second thing, and third thing that's necessary. You know how Satan knows the importance of prayer. William Cowper penned, Satan trembles when he sees 
the weakest saying upon his knees. Martin Luther put it, my prayer is more than the devil himself. Satan understands the power of prayer. That's why there's no limit to the extremes he'll go to keep you from praying. Our enemy's chief strategy is to frustrate our prayer life. Hey, if you think the distractions are numerous when you go to read the Bible, just try to pray. Prayer is the Christian's heavy artillery. In prayer, we bow before God in the safety of our homes or in our church or in our car for that matter. And we lob spiritual shells on the enemy in faraway places. Long before we confront the enemy face to face, we can wear him down through persistent prayer. Remember in the Gulf War, United States ships that set out in the Persian Gulf and they launched computer-guided missiles, smart bombs they called them. They hit targets hundreds of miles away with pinpoint accuracy. The technology was impressive, but not as impressive as what happens in prayer. From our knees, we can launch spiritual bombs aimed at targets all around the world. Prayers of faith bomb satanic strongholds. They lay siege to hard hearts. They break down excuses. They bomb away defenses. They loosen Satan's grip on people. Long before we march in with the gospel, we need to set the stage in prayer. In Mark chapter 3, verse 27, Jesus said, No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. You don't march into a lion's den without first restraining the lion, and neither do you enter Satan's domain without first neutralizing Satan's influence. And this is what we do in prayer. Jesus is stronger than Satan, and when we ask him, Jesus will bind the enemy. He'll tie his hands, then we can empty the house of his captains. You see, prayer is the heavy spiritual artillery. But as with most weapons, some maintenance is involved to keep the big guns firing. And here Paul gives us a six-point checklist for keeping our prayer life locked and loaded. You see, our prayers, they need to be constant, creative, conducted, consistent, compassionate, and combative. First, your prayer life needs to be constant. In verse 18, Paul writes, praying always. Praying always. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 17 put it, pray without ceasing. Well, this doesn't mean that we should stay on our knees for hours and keep our eyes shut all day. What it does mean is that we should live our life in a constant attitude of let me ask you, is your life a conversation with God? Once our family, we were on our way home one night. We were driving around 285. Another event was happening here at the church that night, and I was kind of concerned about what was going on, and so I prayed a prayer. And when I said amen, Zach, who was old, about six years old at the time, he leaned over the front seat and he asked, he said, Dad, were your eyes closed? He was worried. You know, actually, I pray a lot with my eyes open. I like to walk and pray. I like to go out and run and pray. No matter what I'm doing physically, I can have an ongoing conversation with God spiritually. Author Thomas Kelly writes, On one level, we can be thinking, discussing, seeing, calculating,
with men behind the scenes at a profounder level, we may also be in prayer and adoration, song and worship, and a gentle receptiveness to divine dreams. Oh, to pray always is to keep our thoughts only and open to God. Second, we need to keep our prayer life creative. Paul says, pray with all prayer and supplication. You know, prayer comes in different shapes and varieties. There's confession, thanksgiving, and intercession for another person, and adoration, and meditation, and supplication, which is making my request known, and petition, and praise. Variety is the spice of life, and it'll spice up a prayer life as well. Always pray the same prayer, and it gets stale and mechanical. Alter your prayer's objective and approach. It'll spice up your prayer life. Here's a few suggestions. At times, don't be afraid to pray for yourself. I mean, if you don't ask, you won't receive. At times, pray for your friends and family. Hey, pinpoint a missionary to pray for. By all means, would you pray for your pastors? At times, focus on nothing but God, His glory, His grace, His goodness. At times, stop and be thankful. Show a little gratitude for all that God has done. At times, get angry at evil and its perpetrators. Pray for spiritual victory. And always pray that God will make you more like Jesus. Who can forget the little girl who knelt by her bed alongside her mom? She prayed the sweetest prayers. She prayed for her classmates and her playmates. She prayed for her family and friends. She prayed for her parents and her pets. She even prayed for herself. At the end of her prayer, she surprised her mom by saying, And now, God, what can I do for you? (laughs) Paul tells us to pray with all prayer. Be creative. And then third, our prayer life needs to be conducted. God answers Spirit-directed prayers. And this is why Paul says pray in the Spirit. Pray under the Holy Spirit's influence. Here's a tip. Here's a good prayer pointer for you. One thing that will help your prayer life is to find a prayer partner. Someone to share in prayer. Meet with a friend over coffee. Pray with a pal over the phone. Hey, even text a prayer. I'm sure God can read text messages. Whether you know it or not, you already have a prayer partner. The Holy Spirit wants to pray as we pray. We should pray in concert with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit motivates and elevates our prayer life. He guides our thinking as we pray. If we trust Him, He'll teach us how to pray about a given situation or for a particular friend. I've heard it said, Nothing lies beyond the reach of prayer except that which lies outside the will of God. And it's when I'm led by the Holy Spirit, my prayer takes on a greater confidence than it otherwise would have For it is the Holy Spirit who leads me into knowing God's will for that particular prayer. Both corporate and private prayer should be a symphony conducted by the maestro, the Holy Spirit. Well, fourth, an effective prayer life should also be consistent. Paul says to pray with all perseverance. In other words, don't pray once and then quit. Keep it up. Matthew 7, verse 7 is a familiar verse. Ask, and it will be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. But read this verse in the Amplified Version, and you get the real sense of it. 
reads, keep on asking and it will be given. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be open to you. The verb tense is imply persistence. Keep on asking. You recall the parable that Jesus told about the man whose guest arrived late one night? His refrigerator was empty. He had nothing to serve his friend. And so he went next door to borrow some food. His neighbor was fast asleep. When the man banged on the door, the neighbor didn't want to get up. But he kept banging and banging and banging. He made a scene of himself until his sleepy-head neighbor finally gave in. I mean, the man made a scene. He embarrassed himself and his neighbor. He was so desperate. The slumbering neighbor was forced to crawl out of bed, empty his bread box, and give it to the man who kept banging on his door just to shut him up. And to me, this is an amazing illustration where prayer is being compared to sort of a, a holy rudeness. It's like banging on a door. You've not really prayed until you've gotten desperate. It's not that God is reluctant to answer us. That's not the point. He just wants us to become unashamedly persistent to the point of desperation. Often we ask once, and then we stop. Well, hey, I asked God. I'm not going to beg. I mean, it's kind of a prideful thing, isn't it? Well, why wouldn't you beg? God is God. He has love. Why wouldn't you beg? You deserve nada. All that comes from God is the result of His grace. Often God refuses to answer our prayer because of our pride. We think God owes us. We forget to ask humbly. See, I believe God often waits to answer our prayer until our desperation exceeds our sophistication. Notice, fifth, our prayer life needs to be compassionate. Paul says, pray for all the saints. Don't just pray for yourself. Pray for others as well. Pray for both friends and foes. I heard of a single Christian lady who was praying for herself constantly. One Sunday she was challenged to intercede for someone else. She agreed that would be a good idea, and so she started praying for her mom. She asked, Lord, please give my mother a handsome son in law. Hey, remember, when was it that God finally healed Job? When was it? It happened, and I quote, when he prayed for his friends. When he got his eyes off himself, he prayed for his friends. The greatest service you can render a fellow human being is to intercede for them in heartfelt prayer. And while Paul is on the subject of prayer, he says in verse 19, while you pray, please pray for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. This is amazing to me. Paul traveled the world sharing the gospel. He received revelations. He saw the glories of heaven. God even used Paul to write the Bible. And yet he still needs these country folks in Ephesus to lift him up before God in prayer. He asked them to pray for his ministry that he would be fruitful, and that he would be faithful. Which leads to a final point. Our prayer should be combative. Paul didn't ask the Ephesians to pray for his safety and his comfort. No, 
know his request in verse 20 is that I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. So often our prayers are only concerned with smooth sailing and safe waters. Oh, Lord, protect me. Make me happy. Hey, a Christian can be dead and be safe and happy. Paul wants to advance God's kingdom while he's alive. He wants to win people to Jesus. He asks the Ephesians to pray that he'll seize opportunities and walk through open doors and boldly speak God's truth as God intended it to be spoken. Never forget, prayer is not a toy. It's a weapon. It fulfills its truest purpose when it's deployed in the heat of battle. We have all eternity to celebrate our victories, but only a few short months or years to win them. And so, here's what we've learned over the last three weeks about this unseen war. First, we have an adversary. On our own, we're no match for the devil. That's why we need to beware of his wiles and not back down. Having done all, stand. Resist the devil. He'll flee from us. And then we need to put on the whole armor of God. We need to anchor our faith to God's truth, not our fears. We need to put on right desires, God's unshakable peace, an overarching faith. And we need to renew our thoughts with the hope of salvation, the helmet of salvation. And finally, let's charge into this battle, swinging the sword of the Spirit. Good thing I didn't slip out of my hand, did I? We need to charge into battle, swinging the sword of the Spirit. The power of God's Word is available to us. And before we even charge, we need to pound the enemy's fortifications through prayer. We have been given a blade and a bomb. That's our arsenal. Remember, life is a battleground, not a playground. There is an unseen war going on around us. May God help us to win many and mighty victories.